Well, this morning I arose at 5am, not due to the call of one of my daughters wanting to let, them, uh, let me know that they're awake, but in order to make it to the top of Telegraph Hill for our Easter sunrise service. The service began in the solemnity of darkness with candles and torches to help us see. And then gradually, as the sun rose, we were able to celebrate Easter in the full glory of daylight. But can you imagine seeing a sunrise if you'd never known the night? If you'd never known the darkness? It wouldn't really feel like such an event. It would be a bit like viewing the solar eclipse two weeks ago. With all the cloud cover, the end result was a bit disappointing. Just monotonous constancy and the dullness of grey. Movement between colours and contrast between darkness and light is what marks out real life. Just consider the works of master painters. Caravaggio. This is the supper at Emmaus. Turner. The fighting Temeraire. Van Gogh, Starry Night. These painters knew that the contrast between darkness and light brings things to life. Transitions in colour help us to distinguish between chaos and order, between evil and good, between horror and beauty, danger and safety, suffering and joy. And our Gospel writer John knew this too. For in his eyewitness account of the life, death and resurrection of Jesus, we see light invade darkness to reveal God's salvation. That's why right at the start of the Gospel, speaking of Jesus, he says... The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So if you want to understand the significance of Easter, it's necessary to feel this movement from darkness into light. In your news sheets, you'll see a batting order, and if you turn in your Bibles to page 1089, they're in your chairs in front of you, we're going to begin in verse 1 of chapter 20. And we begin with a dark morning. Verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, whilst it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. It was a dark morning for Mary. Not just because the sun had yet to rise, but because of the events of the previous few days. Not long passed, and Jesus had cast out seven evil spirits from Mary, and since then she'd be following him, believing he was God's anointed prophet, the deliverer who was going to set Israel free from their oppressors. But despite Jesus working many miracles and crowds even honouring him as Israel's king, the religious leaders turned fiercely against him. And much to Mary's horror, her hopes were dashed when she witnessed him dying on a cross. Mary had seen Jesus humiliated by the Roman soldiers. They stripped him bare, cast lots for his clothing, and finally pierced his side with a spear. Blood and water poured out. Jesus was dead. That happened in the rush of Friday before dusk, before the start of Sabbath rest when no work could be done. Mary had had to wait until now. Sunday morning before she could lay eyes on Jesus' corpse. It seemed so senseless to Mary 
Why did Jesus, a man full of love, have to die? All that was left now was damage limitation. At least having the opportunity to finish Jesus' burial rites would at least bring some order to the chaos, a task for Mary to focus on in her sadness. Setting off early to the tomb of Jesus, Mary was numb with sorrow, dazed and confused. Then upon arriving at the tomb, the situation became even worse. The stole that had sealed the entrance to Jesus' tomb had been rolled away. Grave robbers must have stolen the body, dishonouring her Lord, leaving Mary nowhere to locate her grief, nowhere to channel the pain and anguish she felt. Not knowing what else to do, helpless, she frantically races back to Simon Peter, who is accompanied by our Gospel writer John. She reports that Jesus' body has been taken and she doesn't know where they've put him. This was a dark and desperate time for Mary. And the truth is, we're not immune from such times either. Darkness is a reality for us. Just think of Philip Bramley, whose son Paul was killed when the German wings plane pitched into the mountain in the southern French Alps. After learning that the co-pilot Andreas Lubitz deliberately clashed crashed the airliner because of his own struggle with mental health. Paul's death and the rest of the victims seemed so senseless, so preventable, so wrong, so dark, so evil. But it was Philip Bramley's statement from the French town of Saint-les-Alpes after the tragedy that I found so striking. It should never happen again. My son and everyone on that plane should not be forgotten, ever. I don't want it to be forgotten ever. I will not get him back or be able to take him home because of the nature of the impact. Me and my family will visit here forever. In that dark time of mourning and grief, Paul's father, Philip, had to shift his perspective from the fleeting to the forever. It just wouldn't do to think that somebody who was so dear to him, who he'd now lost who was so precious, could be forgotten by the world, that the world would move on. And I know that many of you here will have also experienced the loss of bereavement, the darkness and pain of losing someone who's so dear to you, who you love, crying out to God for answers. Why? What does it all mean? Well, at such times, we need the assurance that life is much more than a transitory existence, that there is a forever in which we can hope. Otherwise, how can God possibly be all-loving and good, as Christians claim? But if it's not the pain of bereavement, darkness can take other forms, not necessarily as acute, but still very real. It can come with the recognition that you're not gifted enough to achieve your dreams or the realisation that you've hurt those closest to you and you don't know how to say sorry or reaching the pinnacle of your career and finding it a hollow experience at the top or the torment of those you thought you could trust seriously letting you down or suffering through illness with concern for your health. We're fairly good at anaesthetising ourselves from such experiences. But at some point, it's inevitable that trials and dark times will come. 
just as it did for Mary and the rest of the disciples. So what then is to be done? Where could we look to transition from darkness into light? Well, for the disciples and Mary, the initial glimmer of light was found perhaps where they least expected it, inside the tomb. There was light inside the tomb. There was light inside the tomb for the disciples Simon Peter and John. In verse 3, upon receiving the news from Mary, both Simon Peter and John run as fast as they can to confirm Jesus' tomb was empty. And as they gasp the breath, the fear of grave robbers, just as was the same for Mary, John, who was much younger, arrives earlier. And while he peers inside the tomb to have a look, he doesn't look properly. He waits for the senior, no-nonsense Simon Peter, to rush in first. And what Simon Peter sees is fascinating. The strips of linen and the head covering that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus had previously wrapped around Jesus' body were lying there undisturbed, still twisted round, encircling, enfolding the shape of Jesus' body and head, but flat, like a deflated balloon. Unlike Lazarus, who came out of the tube with grave clothes still wrapped around him when Jesus raised him from the dead, it was as if Jesus' body had simply passed through the cloth, like Jesus had left his grave clothes behind and risen to a new order of existence. Well, this put a thought to, uh, an end to any thoughts of Jesus' body being stolen by grave robbers. Firstly, what criminal in a hurry to get away from the crime scene would spend the time unwrapping the body they wished to steal? And secondly, how would it explain the intactness of the grave clothes? But notice it's only after John enters the tomb in verse 8 to have a proper look that he records he saw and believed. And the word believed carries a sense that John understood from the evidence before him. Importantly, in verse 9, we see John and Simon Peter hadn't yet understood from the Old Testament scriptures that Jesus had to rise from the dead. The fledging faith of John rested not on any preconceived notion that the resurrection of Jesus was part of God's plan, but on the simple facts before him. It was only later when the risen Jesus appeared to the disciples and the Spirit of God helped them recall some of the strange teachings during Jesus' ministry that their understanding of Scripture was transformed. It was later that they truly understood that Jesus was God's Messiah who had to be sacrificed in their place as the Passover lamb in order to pay the price for their sin. But in the immediacy of the event, it was enough for John that God had vindicated what Jesus had been saying by raising him from the dead. This enabled John to begin a tentative journey of faith, one not based on wishful thinking, but on the weight of evidence before him. Well, then after Simon, Peter, and John return home, Mary remains crying. Mary stands outside of the tomb crying, just like the disciples. The last thing she was expecting was for Jesus to rise from the dead. She's still preoccupied with finding the missing corpse. But through her tears, she bends down to take a closer look inside the tomb. And there's light inside the tomb for Mary. 
peering in, she sees two angels seated where Jesus' body should have been, dressed in radiant white. And they begin to question her. Woman, why are you crying? Well, God's messengers aren't being insensitive. They're not questioning Mary for their own benefit. They already know the reason for her tears. Before Mary can open her eyes to the truth, God knows she must first begin to process her darkness and pain. She needs to face up to her darkness at its source inside the tomb. But after verbalizing it once, Mary's still not ready to see. Her grief runs too deep. So when she turns around to see Jesus standing before her, her mind thinks it's the gardener and won't let her see the truth. Well, this time Jesus asks her the same questions as the angel. But she's not understood the power of God. She's looking for answers in the wrong place. In her state of emotional darkness, she's still seeking a corpse. Her eyes hadn't adjusted to the light before her. And then in one of the most beautiful moments of history, Jesus calls Mary by name. Mary. Mary, it's me. And suddenly, her eyes catch up with her other senses. Light streams in, and she cries out to Jesus, Rabbanai, teacher, can it really be you? The sun has fully risen. The first Easter day has dawned. So what about you? Is the light inside the tomb for you? How can the risen Jesus bring light into your darkness? We've thought about the different types of darkness we might face. The darkness of disappointment, grief, hurt and loss. Well, the risen Jesus changes everything. Because he defeated death and darkness and can meet us today, we can now find satisfaction instead of disappointment. Healing instead of hurt. Peace instead of grief and meaning instead of loss. The risen Jesus changed Mary's darkness, and he can change yours and mine too. But it all comes down to whether Jesus has risen from the dead. Perhaps like John, you've run to the tomb of Jesus, but on arrival, you've stopped short of actually going in. You've peeked inside a little, but you've not really explored all the evidence for Jesus' resurrection yourself. If this is the case, then there's the course that Philip mentioned earlier called the Living Course. I'm running it with a colleague of mine. You'll find a flyer in your news sheets. This is your chance to explore who God is in Jesus for yourself. And it's going to be a relaxed way of finding answers to the questions that are relevant to you. Or maybe like John, after he'd entered the tomb, you feel you've seen enough evidence to take those first tentative steps of faith. Perhaps... This Easter Sunday, you want to say, I do believe. I don't understand everything, but I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. I believe he's alive today, and I want to know him for myself. Well, if this is you, then come and speak to myself or Philip after the service. We'd love to accompany you on your first steps out of the tomb, as it were. And that is why today... 
Julie and Nikki's, whose stories we're going to be hearing later, are making the first steps of baptism today. They have discovered that Jesus is alive and can be with them. But there will also be some here, like Mary, and you've come with tears in your eyes. You've come with desperate questions of God this morning. You've previously been seeking answers in the wrong place. And now you've heard God asking questions back of you. Challenging questions. Clarifying questions. The ones you need to confront up to if you're to face up to the darkness that's dragging you down. Perhaps there's a deep pain and anguish that you need to acknowledge with another in his presence before any real sense of light can enter in. If this is you, then know this. The risen Jesus calls you by name. He sees your tears. He knows your heart. He's not distant, but he wants you to know that whatever the darkness, he can bring light. So after the service, we've got a team of people who are trained to pray with you in confidence. They'll be in the back left-hand corner of the church. They're ready to listen to you, and if you wish, to pray with you too. But now, let's rejoin Mary to see how the light of Jesus reaches out of the tomb. The first Easter for Mary came not when she heard the Jesus call her by name, You can imagine Mary struggling to take it all in. Her crucified Lord and friend is not dead, but alive. She's wanting to fling her arms around Jesus. She daren't let him out of her sight again. She needs to be sure that what she's seeing is true. But Jesus says to her, do not hold on to me, for I have yet to return to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I'm returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Jesus wants Mary to know that she will forever enjoy a personal relationship with him. But it's not a private relationship. Jesus' other disciples also need to hear that their Lord is risen from the dead, that he calls them too by name. And because Jesus is going to return to his father and their father, the nature of people's relationship with Jesus has now changed. Jesus is no longer to be known by means of physical touch, as had been the case, but through God's Holy Spirit, who Jesus promises to send to all people who believe in him. Mary is not to hold on to the past, because now Jesus is risen. His presence with her is no longer limited to time and space. This is the message that Jesus instructs Mary to go and pass on to the disciples. That they too can move from grief to joy, from darkness into light. Mary was the first Christian ever to share the good news that Jesus had defeated death, is alive and can be personally known. And this is the light that I'm passing on to you this Easter today. That if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, God's Holy Spirit lives in you. That presence of Jesus, and you can be assured that you'll be raised to new life forever with him.
after the darkness of night comes a glorious new morning. This is the message Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury, shared last week. He said this, The best decision anyone can ever make at any point in life, in any circumstances, whoever they are, wherever they are, whatever they are, is to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. There is no better decision for a human being in this life. Any human being. It's that decision that Nikki and Julie will be publicly testifying to in their baptism in a moment. They'll be relating their own experiences of darkness and how Jesus came alongside, called them by name, brought them into his marvellous light, and so they've decided to follow him. So this Easter, will you let the light of the risen Lord Jesus enter in? Amen.